Well, today I'm going to be jumping into week three of a series that we've called Unchanged. And I'm so glad you're here with us today. I just want you to know God is doing some incredible things in this church. And oftentimes I kind of forget that your perception is different than mine. But uh, I'm just so thankful right now for this worship team and this media team who are on service number three today. They've been serving since about 7.30 this morning. Can we give some love to those folks? Yeah. Amen. God's doing some incredible things in this church, and we want him to continue to do it. It's so important that as we live in a day and an age where things are rapidly changing, that we lock in and lock eyes on those things that cannot change. And that's what this series is all about. There's four things that the church has always done, will always do. We are called to gather, to grow, to give, and to go. We gather in worship. And that's what we talked about the first week of this series, the, the importance of coming together as the body of Christ. 2020 taxed our commitment to that, didn't it? Even 2021 is still challenging our commitment together. I know there's plenty of people that watch every week online. You'd rather not do that. But in spite of the fact that you got to stare at your phone on Sunday morning instead of sitting right up here, you're committed together however you can. And it's important that we gather in worship. Speaking of things unchanging, I'm still battling this cough. So in case you're a first-time guest here, I'm not sick. I'm not going to get you sick, but I've got a cough that's been sticking around since January. But the second thing that we are committed to is, is growing. And we grow through discipleship. Discipleship is what we talked about last weekend. And discipleship happens in the context of relationship. That's why it's so important that we get beyond beyond the rows of a Sunday morning experience and into circles of community. Because discipleship happens in the context of relationship. And how many of you know it is very easy to come into a, a room and, and just be a, a chameleon and have a, a plastic Sunday smile for an hour and to not let anybody know what's going on in your life and to not expose any of the issues of your heart and then to leave again and to be unchanged. <clears throat> But it's when you sit down with other people and you discuss life and you share your stories and you share your struggles and you pray for one another, that's where there's an invitation for grace to enter the conversation. And God does something powerful, but discipleship happens in the context of community. The, the fourth aspect that we'll get to next week is that we give, and we give through compassion. But today, I want to focus in on the going, and we go in evangelism. And let me just say, church, <clears throat> I don't want to take too much credit here. Uh, this is not my idea. In fact, the mission of the church <clears throat> is not my idea. Now, we have a mission. We have a mission statement, and here's how we say it. Leading people from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's one short Easily repeatable, memorizable statement, but it includes all those things. We lead people from where they are in, outside of a relationship with God to where he wants them to be through evangelism. <clears throat> we lead people from where they are to the growth and maturity that he wants in discipleship. We lead people from a, a place of being down and out to being lifted up and helped through compassion. We lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be as worshipers around his throne when we gather. But all of those things, they're just our way of saying Jesus' mission for the church. 
It's his church. Jesus had a mission for the church before we ever came along, and so we don't get to pick the mission. We just get to decide how we want to say the mission. <clears throat> the reality is Jesus had a mission before he had a church. So the truth is, it's not so much that Jesus has a mission for the church. Reality is Jesus has a church for his mission. And I want you to know, <clears throat> long before Acts chapter 2 ever came in, into the story, before Luke wrote that chapter, he wrote another chapter in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And it, Acts 2 is the, the moment where, where Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit, where they begin to preach the Gospel and people are baptized and discipled and fellowship happens in community and com compassion happens for those in need. <clears throat> but before Luke ever wrote Acts 2, he wrote Luke 19. And in Luke 19, we meet a man who wanted to know Jesus. A man that was not liked by anybody in town. <clears throat> in fact, this guy was so disliked that the people were appalled when Jesus said he wanted to hang out with the guy. Jesus saw the man and he said, I, I've got to come to your house. I got to spend time with you today. <clears throat> and Luke 19, 7 says this. All the people saw this, Jesus, saying, I'm going to hang out with a sinner. And they began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of sinners. Can, can you believe that Jesus would go and hang out with sinners? And they muttered. You ever had somebody mutter at you before? <clears throat> You know, like when you're walking down the grocery store aisle and you forgot that you're not wearing a mask. Somebody sees you and they just, they give, they give, they mutter. <coughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, they just, they just, that's what they're doing to Jesus. They can't believe that Jesus would actually spend time with this man. And <coughs> I love Jesus' response because Jesus doesn't just say, oh yeah, I'd spend time with that guy. Jesus says, this is actually the reason that I came. I, I love verse 10, Luke 19, 10. Every, every believer ought to memorize it. <coughs> it's the MO of the Messiah. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he came for. Now, I know, I know church folk, we, we love to have an Acts 2 experience. We want to have a Pentecostal moment. We want the Spirit of God to be poured out. We want to see God doing incredible things in our fellowship and discipleship and in our worship. But can I tell you, church, don't ask God for an Acts 2 experience if you don't have a Luke 19 heart. Because the purpose for God sending the Holy Spirit, the purpose that Jesus gave for promising this baptism was so that we could be his witnesses. <clears throat> and the heart of Jesus is simply this. I came to seek and to save the lost. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, why we're still here. Maybe you wondered, maybe last year with all the stuff going on, with all the things we're dealing with, you maybe had one of those mornings where you woke up and just thought, <clears throat> you know, the Bible says Jesus could come at any time and no man knows the day or the hour, but just want to throw in my vote for today, God. <laughs> you ever had a day? You ever had a day like that? It was just, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're, if they're taking a pool up there, <laughs> today would be nice. 
And maybe you've had those moments where you just thought, why in the world hasn't Jesus come yet? I mean, you know, something's got to break here. Something's going to happen. Well, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, the reality is, church, God's heart is that none would perish. That's why you're still here. That's why I'm still here. In fact, Jesus talked about what has to happen before the end comes in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Listen, this is worth looking up. Put a bookmark there. Highlight it. Underline it. In fact, one commentary said this. This single verse might be the most important verse in the word of God for the people of God today. So find this verse. Matthew 24, verse 14, because here's what it says. Jesus speaking. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If you're praying, oh, what's God waiting for? Well, maybe you're the answer. <laughs> He's waiting on you. He's waiting on me. He said this gospel is going to be preached, and then the end will come. I'm convinced if there's a warning sign on the door posted in hell, these are the words on that sign. That the gospel's gonna be preached and then the end will come. They might be shaking in their boots. When's the end coming? It's coming when the gospel's been preached. It's coming when we fulfill the evangelistic mandate. Church, what do you think Satan's up to today? What do you think he's fighting against the most? If he knows how the story ends and he knows his day is coming, I wanna promise you, <clears throat> he would love nothing more than for the church to lose its purpose. He would love nothing more than for the church to lose its commitment to evangelism. I want to challenge you today to be confident in sharing your faith. Confident. And I'm going to give you three reasons that will give you, give you a little bit of confidence. If you're a note taker, number one is this. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is already working. That ought to give you confidence when it comes to sharing your faith with other people. The Holy Spirit is already working. Now, we saw in Luke 19, Jesus was on an evangelistic mission. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. And God, we know, was on an evangelistic mission because John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Because he wanted him to be saved. He's on a mission. But I'm going to tell you today, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is an evangelistic spirit. He's drawing people. To the heart of Jesus. Jesus talked about it. In John chapter 6, verse 44, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. That's powerful. That means nobody, nobody seeks God unless the Spirit of God is drawing them. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. You can have Confidence when you share your faith with somebody that the Holy Spirit is all already working in their life. The Holy Spirit is already wooing them to salvation. He's already drawing them in. <clears throat> in John chapter 15, again, talking about the Holy Spirit's role, Jesus said this in verse 26. He said, when the advocate comes, 
whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, what's he going to do? He said, he, the Holy Spirit, will testify about me. <clears throat> that ought to encourage somebody to know that when you commit to evangelism, you never work alone. The Holy Spirit is already working. I'm going to show you a picture of that in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, Paul is preaching in uncharted territory. He's preaching to people that he's never reached before, and they don't even have a temple to meet in, and so he goes outside, and he gathers where people gather, and his plan is to just strike up conversation and begin to share with them. He's hoping that maybe there's some scattered believers living in that area, and they can pray together, and they can encourage one another. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One verse tells us three things that we can know about how evangelism works. <clears throat> it says, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Three things right here in that last statement. First of all, it says Lydia was a worshiper. In other words, she was seeking God. This ought to encourage you when it comes to sharing your faith to know that it doesn't matter what you say or how well you say it, you can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. In fact, a person can't be saved until they decide for themselves they're going to seek the Lord. I mean, as much as we love our family, as much as we love our children and, and your grandchildren, God has no grandchildren. And the only way a person can come into relationship is if they pursue the Lord. And so there's something in Lydia's heart that's already being drawn by the Holy Spirit. She's seeking God. The second thing it says is this, the Lord opened her heart. This is the Holy Spirit's work. <clears throat> this is what the prophet meant when he said, God will take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of clay. God is working on her heart. And, and maybe even today in this service, that's what God's doing right now. <clears throat> You're listening to this message and you don't have a relationship with God, but you've been listening to the worship, sing about loving the Lord, about what God can do. You're hearing me talk about who God is and how he wants to save. What is the Holy Spirit doing right now? He's, he's breaking down barriers. He, he's bringing clarity of vision. He's opening your heart. But there's a third component. And it says, the Lord was opening her heart to respond <coughs> to Paul's message. In other words, there's got to be a preacher. And let me say it this way, there's got to be a proclaimer, because we get hung up on that word preaching, and we think evangelism just means standing on a platform and holding a microphone, but there's got to be somebody to tell the message. There's got to be somebody to tell the good news. <clears throat> but we can have confidence today to know that when we share, there's a part that we have to play. There's also a part that that person has to play. But in the midst of that, there's a part the Spirit of God is playing. The Holy Spirit is drawing people to salvation. He's already working. The second encouragement for sharing your faith is this. Not only is the Holy Spirit already working, but the gospel brings salvation. <clears throat> the gospel brings salvation. I need to emphasize that because it's, it's not... 
It's not man's eloquence that brings salvation. It's not my ability to articulate theology that brings salvation. It's not the compassion that we demonstrate to the community that brings salvation. It's not the Easter outreaches or activities or things that people might, it's the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation. To those who believe, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. You know, too often, here's what we do. We think that that verse says, or at least we act like that verse says, I am not ashamed of the explanation of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Like, if I can just convince them, if I can win the argument, if I could, if I could win on the debate stage, then I would be an evangelist. But man, you know, those thinkers at the university, they're just too smart. You know, my professor, he just knows too much. I'm telling you, it's not your ability to explain the gospel. It's the gospel. The word says that God takes the foolishness of the world to confound the wise. He takes weakness to show strength. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you, you have enough to operate in the mission of evangelism if you've been saved. If you've been saved, you've got enough. In fact, seven of the most powerful words in all of the Bible are found in John chapter 9. And here are those seven words. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind. But now I see. Jesus in John chapter 9 meets a man who was born blind. He didn't become blind. He was born blind. And Jesus tells the man, I want you to go down to the pool of Siloam and wash your face. He told him to wash his face because he had just made a mud pie and put it on the guy's face. So he was probably going to do that anyway. But, but Jesus said, Go down to the pool and wash your face, and when you do, you'll see. And so the man listened and went by faith, and exactly what Jesus said would happen did happen. The man could see. The people around him were so dumbfounded. They couldn't believe. In fact, some of them said, that's not even the same guy. That was the, you know, people try to make sense of the supernatural, and that, that never works. And uh, they just make weird YouTube videos that don't make sense, but it's, it's supernatural, so... They started going, you know what? what it, that guy looks like the guy. That's what it is. The guy looks like the guy. Meanwhile, the guy's standing there saying, I'm the guy. I'm the, I'm the guy. Kind of like some of you when you went back to your like 25th high school reunion. You're like, no, it really, I'm that dude. That's me. I know, I know, it's me. He said, I'm that guy. <clears throat> and so the people said, then tell us, how were your eyes open? I want you to see verse 11. When they said, how were your eyes open? He replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. In other words, he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. He's not a follower. He's not a disciple. He didn't didn't even just say Jesus did it. No, he said the man they call Jesus. He's a stranger, but he's experienced the power of the gospel. And this is how it works in a person's life. You don't have to... You don't have to understand the the gospel to be changed by it. When Jesus touches your life in a moment, things can change. And all of a sudden, everything was changed for this guy. He hadn't even quite figured out why. But still, the people didn't believe him. 
And so they went and got the religious leaders, and they came, and the Pharisees started questioning the guy. And they said, hey, tell us the story. What's the deal? Who is this guy that opened your eyes? How did it happen? And the guy responds to them in verse 17, and he says, he's a prophet. Wow, now we're getting a little closer to Jesus' identity. He knows he's a prophet because he prophesied, go wash the mud off your face, and you'll be able to see, and it came true. And so now he, he's, got a, he's got a foundation of experience. He's building some conviction here. They still didn't believe the guy. The Pharisees said, go get his parents. we got to straighten this thing out. <clears throat> so they go and get the guy's parents. And they say, tell us what's the deal with your son. Could he see? Was he faking it? What's the deal? What happened to him? Who healed your son? His parents were so intimidated by the religious leaders. They didn't want to get kicked out of the church. So... They just said, you know what? He's a grown man. He can answer for himself. <laughs> you, you go ask him. And they sent them back to the man. <clears throat> so they come back to him again. And the religious leaders say, look, give glory to God for healing you. We know this guy. He's a sinner. And then the man responds in verse 25. He says, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. You know, there's no argument for a personal testimony. <clears throat> there's no argument for a life that's changed. And you might, you might not be able to, to expound on, on Scripture the way you wish you could. You might not have enough of it memorized the way you'd like to. But if Jesus has changed your life, I want to promise you, you've, you're a witness. And that's what we're called to be. Acts 1.8 says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. And when you call a witness to the stand, you want a first-person account. You don't call a witness to the stand for hearsay. Well, I knew somebody one time that talked to a fellow that might have. Come on. We want a witness. We want somebody that, that can say, this is what happened in my life. This is what happened to me. <clears throat> and that's what happened in this man's life. And he became a witness. Not only were his physical eyes opened, but <clears throat> through the process God began to open his spiritual eyes. In fact, down in verse 33, they're still arguing with him. And now this guy who didn't even know who Jesus was, uh, 10 minutes ago, he was the man people called Jesus. Now in verse 33, he says to the religious people, he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And he probably said it like that with a little attitude too. I mean, he's realizing, man, you can't deny a person who's seen the miracle-working power of Jesus. You might be smarter than me, but let me tell you, I was blind, but now I see. They didn't know what to do with that, so they just kicked him out. And the Bible goes on in the same chapter to say, Jesus found the man, and he came up to him. <coughs> and he asked him a question. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy said, I, I don't know who he is. <laughs> and Jesus said, well, let me tell you, you've seen him, and you're looking at him right now. And then the man went from saying, the man they call Jesus healed me, to saying in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. <clears throat> I want to encourage you. Maybe you're somewhere on that spectrum of knowing the man they call Jesus, and maybe you're a little bit closer now to worshiping him. But if you have had an experience with Jesus, you need to be a witness. You don't need to wait. This guy was testifying before he even knew who Jesus really was. 
He just knew his life was changed. And if Jesus is changing your life, you need to be a witness. Let me give a shameless plug right here. Because in six weeks, we're going to have a new life celebration. In six Sundays from today, we're going to be doing water baptisms in this service on a Sunday morning. And the Bible says that water baptism is our public profession of faith. It is it is the way that we give a witness <clears throat> to what Jesus has done in your life. So if you've never been baptized as a statement of your own faith, I'm not talking about a, a ritual or a religious experience where you, know, you were sprinkled with water as a baby. I mean, if you've never made a public declaration of your own faith in Jesus through water baptism, you need to sign up for it. Why? Because there's nothing more powerful than a personal witness, somebody that steps into the water saying, I was blind, but now I see. And I want to promise you, God wants to use your testimony. He wants to use your witness to draw other people. It's not about how good or how bad your story was. It's not about, you know, all the things that God saved you out of. It's not your, it's not your past that is the power of God into salvation. It's the gospel. And when you declare the gospel, it doesn't matter if you were a strung out drug addict that God picked up off the streets or if you grew up like me and you learned how to walk by holding onto the altar and you cut your teeth on a church pew. It doesn't matter what your story is. The fact is the gospel does not make bad people better. The gospel makes dead people come to life. That's the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Remembering that ought to encourage you to share your faith. You know, we know this stuff. We hear it and we forget how powerful it is to just tell somebody that God loved them so much that he sent his son to die for them. That's powerful. That God knew them even before they were formed in their mother's womb. That from the foundation of the earth, he knew them. The gospel can penetrate and change a person's heart. Put confidence in the gospel. The third thing, It's not only the Holy Spirit working and the gospel working, but number three, we have co-workers in the field. In other words, when you commit to evangelism, you can have the confidence that you're not working alone. In fact, when Paul was ministering in Corinth, there were people there that were just, they loved his ministry so much, they became Paul followers. They were fangirling over the Apostle Paul. And they said, when anybody would talk about church, they'd be like, oh, I follow Paul. That's my guy. I follow Paul. You know, and, and I'm not going to be in church this weekend because Paul's holding a meeting in the next town. I'm going to go to his crusade because, you know, I fo- and I know we got a whole prayer team up front, but I'm going to stand in the long line because I follow Paul. I need Paul to pray for me. I don't want you to pray for me over there. You know what I'm saying? That's what they were doing. And then other people in the church were saying, well, I follow Apollos. I mean, Paulus is polished. He's eloquent. He's, he's a good communicator. And that's who I follow. And so Paul writes to this church, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. <coughs> Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters, they have one purpose, and they'll be each rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You 
are God's field, God's building. I love what Paul says here. A lot of people interpret that scripture out of like the King James to say we're co-laborers with Christ. But really, I think this translation is more accurate. Though we do work in partnership with the Spirit of Christ, what he's saying is me and Apollos are co-workers. What he's saying is you and I are co-workers. When we share the gospel, we're doing it in partnership with other people. Why? Because some people are sowing seed. Some people are watering seed. That ought to give you confidence when you share your faith with somebody and they reject you. Don't take it personal. Just because you don't see any faith sprouting above the surface doesn't mean God's not doing a root work. You might just be there to scatter seed. You might just be there to water it. Someday somebody's going to come along and they're going to come with the sickle and they're going to bring in the harvest. But we work in partnership. If you've got kids in our kids ministry right now, you've got some co-laborers. You've got some co-workers that are partnering with you to raise your children to be disciples of Christ. We're partners. Every time you invite someone to come to church that you've been witnessing to and minister. <laughs> ministering to and you've been earning their trust and you've you finally got to the place where they're willing to go with you to church I want you to know I count that as a privilege to stand here on this platform and to partner with you to co-labor with you in bringing in the harvest that's why I give opportunities for people to get saved every Sunday it's not because I think you guys are such lousy Christians that you need to get saved every Sunday. I promise you. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I'm convinced that you're committed to the commission. And if you've done the hard work of building the relational equity with a person to get them to come with you and sit with you in church, you better believe your pastor is committed to co-labor with you and give them an opportunity to know Jesus. We're co-laborers. For those of you watching online, even though you can't be in the room, just simply sharing what God is saying to you, doing in your life, on your social media platform, all of a sudden takes the gospel into circles that it wouldn't go otherwise. You're a, you're a co-laborer. We've got people in this church right now that weren't a part of this church last year, but because of 2020 and having to do church online, and having so many more of our church members watching online and sharing the services online and interacting. Your co-labor caused the spread of the gospel to go farther, and people are a part of this church today because of that. I didn't preach any different. I shouted at the camera and spit on it the same way I shout and spit at you. But when we work together, we're co-laborers. Our life groups are an opportunity to co-labor. In just a couple weeks, we're going to be putting the material in people's hands. And I just want to be honest with you. We need people to step up and lead life groups. We need people that are willing to say, I'm going to open my heart. I'm going to open my home. I'm going to open my calendar. I'm going to make time to get together with other people. Because there's something powerful and transformational that can happen when you're not sitting in rows, but when you're sitting in a circle. <clears throat> and someone says, you know, I'm not comfortable with going to your church, but I'll come to your house. I'll come hang out. We can do a little, you know, Bible discussion about faith. And then they hear one person talk about something they're struggling with. And they can relate to that. And then they hear somebody else talk about God's faithfulness to help them through a difficult situation. And somebody else talk about the way that God has restored something that, that they thought the enemy had taken out of their life. And, and God's working, and all of a sudden... <clears throat> Faith can begin to rise in that atmosphere when we co-labor together. 
I gave you some cards. They're, they were on your seat when you came in. These Easter invitations are just an opportunity to labor together. And I want to challenge you to consider somebody that, <clears throat> that you can give it to. In fact, we've got a stack of them out there at the Info Center. This one might just need to be your reminder because service times are different on Easter Sunday. So this one might have to go on your fridge so you don't show up at the wrong time for church. But we've got a bunch of them back there. Whether it's the one in your hand or the one you grab on the way out, I want to challenge you to, to be a co-laborer because Easter is a great opportunity. Because it's low-hanging evangelistic fruit. Like, it's easy to invite people to church on Easter. If you don't invite somebody to church on Easter, I question your salvation. Not really, but it felt like if I said that, you might lock back in for the last five minutes of this message. Listen, it's easy to invite people to Easter, right? So, maybe you know someone that's got kids, and all the Easter egg hunts are getting canceled because of COVID, and you can go, you know what? Our church is going to give an Easter basket to every kid that comes to church that day. They just have their own basket pre-wrapped. It's in cellophane. It's got candy. It's got toys. We're going to give one to every kid that shows up. You can say, hey, you know what? I know Easter looks different this year. The bunny's wearing a mask, but come to my church. Come to my church to find out what Easter's really all about, and they're going to give an Easter basket to your kid talking about partnership. There was research done that showed that only 4% of church attenders have the gift of evangelism. Four. That kind of made me nervous when I read that, honestly. But then I remembered the last time I took one of those spiritual gifts analysis tests. Have you ever taken one of those spiritual gifts tests? I took one, and when I got to the end of it, I found that I scored really low on hospitality and mercy. But you know, you know what I found out after that? I realized I still have to be nice to people. Like, you know, I didn't get a pass. You know, I'm like, you know what? You guys, you guys host the life groups. You get the snacks. You shake people's hands. I scored pretty low on hospitality. I don't really want to deal with people. No. No, you still got to have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it's the same with evangelism. It might not be your primary gifting. Maybe, it, maybe it's not your personality. You know, I'm not saying you've got to go and stand on a corner and, and, and declare that people need to turn to Jesus. In fact, studies have shown that, that those approaches are, are not working with, today, <laughs> with today's culture. There was a really disturbing survey done by the Barna Group in 2019. In 2019, Barna Research said, 47% of millennial Christians think evangelizing others is wrong. Did you hear what I said? They, they, 47%. They don't think it's unpopular or hard or unnecessary. 47% of millennials said, Christians said, evangelizing is wrong. That's a scary stat, and it caused Barna Research to dig deeper. And they were a little comforted when they found out this stat also, that millennial Christians, 94% of them believe that coming to Jesus is the greatest thing that can happen to anyone. <laughs> so why the dichotomy? Why 94% why of them are convinced coming to Jesus is the best thing that could happen, but 47% think that evangelizing people is wrong? Well, what they discovered is that it's not that the millennials don't understand the need for evangelism. They have a problem with the methodology. 
In other words, if, if standing on the corner and shouting in a bullhorn, turn or burn, is your method of evangelism, that's wrong. If going to the restaurant on Sunday afternoon and instead of tipping, <coughs> tipping your wait, waitress, you just put a track down, tell her she needs Jesus, if that's evangelism, that's wrong. <clears throat> and young people today are growing up in a world, young Christians today know and have relationship with more unsaved people outside of the church than any other generation. And, and not only do they have more relationships with people outside of the church, but we live in a, in a cultural context where disagreement is interpreted as judgment. You've experienced that before, right? <clears throat> you tell somebody you disagree, and then uh, they tell you you don't accept them. Why are you you're judging me? You don't, you don't need a stat for that. Just get on Facebook. Try to disagree with somebody. See how that goes for you. Like, we live in a world where people take disagreement incredibly personal. And so what we're seeing in the, the youth culture and the millennial generation is that they want more of a <coughs> conversation and not just a proclamation. You know what? I'm cool with that because I'm convinced that there are ways of doing evangelism that we've never thought of yet. There are many ways that we can reach the lost. Methods will always change. The ways you can change, but the why has to stay the same. And my concern and my conviction in preaching this message is that this church doesn't lose focus on the why. Why he's called us to evangelize the lost. <clears throat> you know, when I was a teenager, I was a part of a clown ministry. That's right, clown ministry. <laughs> if, if you don't know what a clown ministry is, just use your imagination. That's it. That's a clown ministry. We learned how to put on the makeup. We had the big shoes. We learned how to make balloon animals. And we went to the park, and we just clowned until we got a crowd. And then we... <laughs> We told people about Jesus. <clears throat> but how many of you know if today I painted my face like a clown and put on some big old shoes and went down to the park, I'd get punched in the face. I mean, we got a whole generation of people that are freaked out by clowns. <laughs> so I recognize our ways have to change, but our why has to stay the same. It can't change. I'm going to ask the worship team to, to come back and join me here. And I want to tell you a, a closing story <clears throat> about how easy it is to lose the why. In the 1800s, in the 1800s, George Williams had compassion on the youth that were living in the slums of London. They had come to London to find work, but there was no work, and so many of them turned to crime. And so Williams started a Bible study discipling young men in 1844. His little Bible study became known as the Young Men's Christian Association, or YMCA, for short. And as the name indicated, the core value of the organization was Christ. Williams even said this, and I quote, our object is the improvement of the spiritual condition of the young men engaged in the houses of business by the formation of Bible classes 
family and social prayer meetings, mutual improvement societies, or any other spiritual agency. The motto for the YMCA was John 17, 21. Jesus' prayer, that they would be one, Father, as you and I are one, so that the world may know that you sent me. The YMCA spread like wildfire across the country and then across the ocean, came to the United States. And in 1888, the YMCA became one of the most successful missionary recruiting organizations of all time. John Mott was the leader at that time. And under his leadership, the YMCA helped by commissioning more than 20,000 missionaries. But something changed. Disillusioned by the Great War, young people started becoming skeptical about Christianity. They started losing their faith. They started slacking in their attendance. And revenue started declining for the business. And so the YMCA decided to emphasize their fitness program and downplay its biblical training. During the 1970s and the 1980s, the YMCA completely reinvented themselves as a family fitness center. And in 2010, the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, dropped all of the letters except the Y. Ironically, in losing everything but the why, they lost their why. They changed their ways, but they also changed their why. And I want to challenge you today to be open to the Spirit's leading on the way that He wants you to answer the call. It, it, It may be just one of your hobbies that you already have. This is something you're passionate about, something you love to do. Could you, could you use that to tell somebody about Jesus? Could you use that, that group of friends, that works, that work relationship, those opportunities to just insert the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation and to trust that the Holy Spirit's already working And to know that while you're sowing seed, somebody else in their life is probably watering that seed. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had his crosshairs on them for salvation long before you ever opened your mouth. Would you be open to consider how God wants to use you in answering the call to evangelism? I want to ask you to take this card. It's in your hand. And we're going to close in prayer. But I, I believe that if you aim at everything you hit nothing. So I don't want you to pray a prayer that says, you know, God help me to reach the lost. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to put a person in your heart. Put a person on your mind. And maybe, maybe the next step is to invite that person to church. Invite them to Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday. But don't cut, don't cut God short on what he wants to do. Maybe a better plan would be for you to invite them to Jesus. And then just tell them after they're saved, they ought to go to church. It's Easter. (laughs) But I want you to pray with me that the Holy Spirit would speak to you about a person. And as you're thinking about that, I want to make an invitation right now to anyone that might be hearing this message about who we're called to be as the church. 
And maybe you're the one that the Holy Spirit's working on. Maybe you're the one that God's dealing with. He's drawing you in. And you've heard the gospel today. If you need to have a relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you, begin it right now. Don't wait. You don't have to have it all figured out. Just obey him in the first step. For the blind man, it was go and wash in the pool. For you today, it's just ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. He'll teach you the rest. We've got a family here that God's called you into. You'll learn the rest. But if that's you today and God's calling you, just respond obediently. Give him your heart. Give him your life right now. Say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Be the Lord of my life. Come and live in me. That spirit that's drawing me, I want it to live in me, to lead me so that I know how to do this thing called walking by faith. Church, could we stand all over this room?